Our teacher today is Rabbi Adam Greenwald. Um, in this room, I would say a certain percentage know you, Adam, but a certain percentage have no idea who the heck you are. They came for the topic. So, it's, so uh, though you'll get both Adam and the topic today. Um, Adam is the director of the Lewis and Judith Miller Introduction to Judaism program at American Jewish University. And it's the largest preparatory program for those considering conversion to Judaism in North America. Adam, how many students do you have currently in your program? About 300 per year. 300 per year. So, you know, the pupils telling us that Jews are leaving. Adam's bringing in recruits. So that's uh, awesome. And actually, I've met many of these, and he may mention some in here. I don't know. They are awesome, incredible people. We're very happy to have them join us um, in the Jewish community, and we're happy to have Adam um, bringing them and teaching them. Um, Adam also serves as a lecturer in the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies in, in the AJU's Graduate School of Education. In 2014, Rabbi Greenwald was named one of America's most inspiring rabbis. Rabbi Greenwald previously served as Rebson Rabbinic Fellow at a small place called Ikar up in L.A. Um, it's uh, recognized as one of today's most innovative spiritual communities in the United States of America. Prior to ordination, he spent two years as a rabbinic intern at Congressman Israel of Tustin, ergo the um, plethora of um, CBIers here today. His writing has appeared in the Washington Post and the Jewish Journal. He's a contributor to Shema, a Jewish uh, journal, of, sorry, a journal of Jewish ideas, S Blog, the Ziegler School, today's Torah, and Jewish Values Online. Our topic for today is Amichai Poetry and Possibility. Thank you, Adam, for being here with us today. Thank you all for coming out on Veterans Day. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you to my really good friend, um, Ari Katz, who has been so generous in inviting me down to participate in CSP now for my second time um, with this group and has just been an incredible mentor to me over the last five years. So thank you for having me. It's good to see a lot of friendly faces. It's good to see a lot of new faces. Um, and it's good to be together in this way to talk about one of my very favorite poets. Um, and I suspect a favorite poet of many of the people in this room, Yehuda Amichai. Before we talk about Amichai and specifically the poem that we're going to unpack together over the course of the next 45 minutes, I want to say something about poetry and why study poetry. It seems to me that we go to poetry and religion for very similar things. We go to poetry and to religion for a taste of the possible. You know, we live in a world that does a very good job of beating our ideals out of us, of taking what we believe to be true, what we in our core know to be true about the ways that human beings are supposed to interact with one another, that we are supposed to honor ourselves, each other, and this earth, and our world has a way of making a mockery of those values. And we go back to religious sources and we go back to poems to hold up a vision of what we know to be true on the inside and what we don't want to lose track of, what we don't want to become cynical about, what we don't want to stop believing could be in the world that we share. So when I read a text whether it's a text of the Bible or of the rabbis or a text of a poet like Amichai, I'm going and looking for a reminder about what sometimes it is hard to believe in the face of a challenging world. And I say that 
at the outset of this because we're going to talk about a topic today that many of us feel justifiably cynical about. We are going to read a poem about the possibility of peace coming to Jerusalem. And I think that we would not be honest with ourselves or with each other if we didn't say that over the course of many years, we have all had a hardening of some piece of our heart. We've all had that feeling that comes and goes and sometimes lingers, that what we see today is what we will always see, that we're not gonna leave a better world to children and grandchildren. Sometimes that's a passing fear, and sometimes that starts to stick, and we start to become cynical. A poem or a text can't offer a political solution to a problem. I am not going to suggest over the course of this study any particular political way that we can find ourselves out of the quagmire that we are mired in now. That would be inappropriate to ask of a text. It would be inappropriate to ask of a religious text. You know, I, I was asked in my rabbinical school interview. Rabbinical school interviews are terrifying. They sit you at the head of a really long table and they put rabbis lining down each side of the table and they throw questions at you. And um, one of the questions that I was asked was, could I be a good rabbi to somebody I disagreed with profoundly in politics? That was a really interesting question. That was the question that Rabbi Brad Artson, who I know is dear to many people in this room, asked me. He said, could you be a good rabbi to somebody who disagrees with you profoundly? And the truth is, is I think the answer I gave him is the only answer I would still give the same 10 years after my rabbinical school interview. I said, Rabbi Artson, I don't believe that any of the texts of our tradition say one particular policy solution to any particular problem. I don't think that our biblical texts mandate either an increase of welfare benefits or suggest that there should be welfare to work pro programs. I don't think that our texts mandate a particular solution to the problem of climate change. What our texts demand of us is that we're awake to the problem. If, we, if I think that there's one particular solution to the problem of poverty, and you think there's another particular solution to the problem of poverty, both of those can be Jewish places to stand. If you're not concerned with the fact that in Los Angeles County, where I live, there are 80,000 people who are not sure if they're going to have a roof over their head each night, then you're outside of the spectrum of Jewish religious text, right? If you have one solution and I have another solution, fine, that's great. If it doesn't bother your kishkas, then we have a religious problem. If you have one solution for how we can best care for this earth that we've been given, and I have another solution, that's fine. But if we're not concerned with how to be shomra ve'odav in this garden, to tend and care for this garden, then we're outside of the religious conversation. I don't think that any particular text we can look to to a political solution. I think we look to text to remind us of what's possible. And then we have to do the hard work together of figuring out how to get there. So I offer that as a sense of kavanah going into this, what we are looking for from the text and what we're not. 
and I offer it with the suggestion that we try to accept this text with the most open and softest part of our hearts, the part that is interested in connecting with possibility, and that we, just for this short amount of time, try to find the place that cynicism can't touch. That's what religion can offer us. That's what poetry can offer us. So let's dive into the poem. Amichai was born in 1924 in Germany. He was born with the very unfortunate name of Ludwig Pfiffer um, and made a much better choice when he, like most of the early Chalutzim, took a Hebrew name. He took the name Yehuda Amichai. Um, Yehuda, the name of the Jewish people, also a name for giving praise. And Amichai, my, my people live. He made Aliyah to Israel in 1934. You may know that among a certain generation of people who came to Israel, there are three dates on their tombstone, not two. Usually there's a birth date and a death date. On the gravestones of people who came in that early Chalutznik era, there are typically three dates. There's your birth date, your death date, and in between, your Aliyah date. He came to Israel from Germany in 1934. He came as a 10-year-old boy. Um, he spent the rest of his life in Jerusalem. He died in 2000. He died 15 years ago. Amichai was the veteran of five wars. He was in the Palestine Brigade in World War II, the Jewish Brigade that fought in Europe. He fought with distinction in the War of Independence in 1948. He fought in 56 in Sinai and was still doing military service in 1967 in the Six Day War and in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War. This is a man who surely on Veterans Day it is worthy to talk about. Um, I did not know it was gonna be Veterans Day before I, uh, I, I took this, um, but I'm grateful that it is. Um, and certainly not somebody who can be accused of being a dreamer in the clouds. This is a man who knew with his very heart and soul and guts what kind of sacrifices it took to bring Israel into being. He knew with his very heart and soul and guts what war is and what he wanted to see for the Israel that he left to his children and to his grandchildren. Amichai is known well as a, the poet laureate of Israel. Each one of his poems is a treasure. One of the things that's so remarkable about his poetry is he, like many Israelis of that generation, was extraordinarily versed in the Bible. The Hebrew that he learned was Hebrew that was deeply rooted in biblical Hebrew. And the early Halutzim, though profoundly secular, studied Tanakh with an incredible seriousness because they were relearning the map of the land they were rebuilding. So the poems that he offers are informed by this very deep knowledge of Jewish tradition, this very deep knowledge of Jewish text. And the truth is, is to read them in translation is a bit like kissing a lover through the sheets. It's something approximating the real thing, but it really lacks the oomph. Um, so we're going to go back and forth between the Hebrew and the English today, because if we just looked at it in the English, we would miss all sorts of gems. I love really every poem I've come across of Yehuda Amichai. I've yet to find one that disappoints me. Um, but one poem in particular 
that has been with me for the last five or six years uh, is the poem I want to share with you today. And we are going to spend our time together really digging into this text. And I'm going to look to us for, um, for thinking together and for discussion. This is not just going to be a frontal lecture. So the poem is on the first page of your sheet. I'm going to read it through one time in Hebrew just to hear the music of it. Then I'm going to read it through again in English. And then we're going to go back through and we're going to go back through line by line. I am a American boy. I grew up in Long Beach, about 20 miles up the 405 freeway. There are some native Hebrew speakers in this room, and I am going to do bad things to your language. So I apologize right now. And if I say a word profoundly wrong, I ask you to forgive me and correct me um, because I want to honor his language. Roe Aravi, Mechapeskadi Bahartzion. Roe Aravi, Mechapeskadi Bahartzion. Ubehar Mimul, Animechapes, at Bni Hakatan. Roe Aravi, Fa'av Yehudi, Bekishlonam, Hazmani. Kolocha Ninu Nifgashim Me'al, Libricata Sultan, Be'emek, Be'emsa. Shnei rotsim shelo yikansu haben vehagdi letoch tachlich hamechana hanoraa shel chadgadia. Achar kach matzano otam benesichim vekolotenu chazru elenu ubachu vetzachaku bifnim. Hachipusim achar gdi veachar ben hayutamid hatchalat dat hadasha baharim haela. An Arab shepherd is searching for his goat on Mount Zion. An Arab shepherd is searching for his goat on Mount Zion. And on the opposite hill, I am searching for my little boy. An Arab shepherd and a Jewish father, both in their temporary failure. Our two voices meet above the Sultan's pool in the valley between us. Neither one of us wants the boy or the goat to get caught in the wheels of the Chadgad Ya machine. Afterward, we found them among the bushes, and our voices came back inside us laughing and crying. Searching for a goat or for a child has always been the beginning of a new religion in these mountains. All right, let's take it apart. Roe Aravi, an Arab shepherd. We start here with a shepherd. Tell me about shepherds in our tradition. Who is a shepherd in our tradition? David was a shepherd in our tradition. David shepherded sheep until he rose to power. Um, David was a shepherd. Who else was a shepherd? Abraham was a shepherd. All the patriarchs, Ari said, were shepherds. Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. And the flocks of Yitro, his father-in-law, in Midian. Who else is a shepherd in Jewish tradition? Not quite our tradition, but yeah, right? Jesus is the shepherd of people, the shepherd of men in the Christian tradition, drawing on a deep tradition of what they call the Old Testament, and we would not awkwardly just call it the Testament, so we just call it the Bible, um, this sense of shepherding. Jesus is a shepherd. Who else is a shepherd? God is a shepherd. Adonai roi loach sar. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
everybody from God on down in our Jewish tradition are shepherds. Tell me why. Why is it significant? I mean, I know anthropologically why people raised sheep and continue to raise sheep as nomadic folks in the Middle East, but we're looking at this as poetry. What's a shepherd? Yes, please. And, A shepherd has to be aware of each and every one of their sheep. And why is that important? Because each sheep, each sheep is precious to them. Each sheep has to be treated preciously. I actually had the opportunity in the summer of 2008 to spend two weeks camping on the land of a Navajo shepherd on the Navajo reservation. I was leading a group of Jewish teenagers, 20 Jewish teenagers who spent two weeks doing Habitat for Humanity type work on the Navajo reservation and we stayed with a shepherd. And he told us that he could distinguish every single one of his sheep. Now, sheep are the prototypical alike thing, right? Sheep are, when we want to say everything is all alike, we say it's all like a flock of sheep. And this shepherd said, no, you don't understand. If you spend day in and day out, you know each sheep individually. In order to be a leader of people, in order to be perhaps an Abraham or a Jacob or a Moses or frankly a Jesus, or in the Muslim tradition, Muhammad was a shepherd. Or if you want to be God, you need to be able to distinguish difference and uniqueness where somebody else might just see the same. Right? Isn't that the greatness of, think of the greatest teacher you ever had growing up. A great teacher sees a classroom full of individuals. A lousy teacher sees one mass that they impart knowledge on. A great teacher sees a room full of individuals and nurtures each one. How much the more so a great leader? How much the more so God? So a shepherd is one who knows their flock intimately. And they're always in danger. And they're always in danger. Say more about that. Well, there's, there's animals around that would attack wolves, lions other people who would steal them. Other rustlers, people who would capture them for their own use. People who would capture them. A shepherd is a guardian, okay. right? He's not just watching over, he or she is not just watching over their flock to make sure they do what they need to do and bring them back. It's a constant guardian, and there's constantly a sense of lurking danger around a shepherd. Because at the end of the day, when the shepherd counts his sheep, perhaps one or two of them are gonna be gone. People know the tradition of going to a grave and placing a stone. This is a, an interesting tradition that nobody's quite sure the origin of. There are many different explanations. The one that seems most likely to me actually comes from the days when our people were shepherds. I don't know if people know this. A shepherd would fill up a pouch with pebbles, one for each sheep. That was their way of keeping track of the number of sheep in the flock. If you had 100 sheep, you'd have 100 pebbles in your pouch. And when you counted them at the end of the day, in order not to lose count, you would count off each of the pebbles. If you were missing a sheep at the end of the day, you removed a pebble from your pouch and left it behind. And then you had an accurate count. When we go to a gravesite and we leave a stone behind, what we're essentially saying is one is missing from the flock. One who used to be with us is no longer with us in the flock. That's probably the origin of that tradition that all of us do when we go to visit our loved ones at the cemetery. 
So a shepherd is somebody who knows their flock intimately and who perceives a constant sense of danger. Starting this poem with a shepherd who's lost his sheep starts us with a sense that the world is topsy-turvy a little bit, that there is something dangerous, something bad could happen to that sheep when the shepherd's not watching. Yes, please. Well, they're also the animal that we sacrifice. They're also an animal of sacrifice. So they're an animal that we guard over, but they're also an object of sacrifice. And sacrifice is going to be a theme that's going to run through this entire poem, this idea of sacrifice. Thank you so much. So let's hang on to that. Let's hang on to a sense of a missing sheep is a sheep in danger, but a sheep is also sacrifice. A sheep is also sacrifice. Good? Enough said about shepherds? Well, maybe. Um, let's, let's look at one other thing about shepherds on the, um, page one of your packet, the numbered page one. It's the middle text in the page. It's from Exodus Rabbah. Exodus Rabbah is an early collection of midrashim, of rabbinic legends about the book of Exodus. And they asked the question in Exodus Rabbah, how was Moses chosen to be the leader of the Jewish people? Just like Abraham before him, we don't, find, we don't have any concrete reason why Moses gets the task that he gets. We get backstory about him being saved at birth and raised in the palace, but why is Moses the one tapped to be the savior of the, of the Jewish people? And they say it has something to do not actually with his time in the Egyptian palace, but with his time watching the sheep of Yitro. Text in the middle of the page. God tests the righteous by having them tend flocks. When Moses was tending the flock of Yitro, his father-in-law, he noticed that one little kid had fled from him. Moses ran after it until he reached a shady oasis near a pool of water. Upon watching the little kid drink, he said, I didn't realize you were so thirsty. You must be weary. And he carried the kid back upon his shoulders. Upon seeing this, the Holy One declared, since this one shows so much compassion for his flock, he is fitting to become the shepherd of my flock. And therefore it says, Moses was a shepherd. The name used for Moses in the Zohar, in the classic of Jewish mysticism, is Moses is Raya Mehemna. In, Ara in Aramaic, the faithful shepherd. Raya Mehemna, the faithful shepherd. So a lost kid and somebody going searching after it is in at least the Midrash's conception the origin story of Moses who will redeem our people. So let's carry that whole constellation of things. Carry the sense of shepherd represents all of our ancestors. Shepherd can even represent God. Shepherd and a lost kid is a situation of danger. There's a sense here of the possibility of sacrifice. And there's also the sense here that searching for a lost kid can be the beginning of something redemptive. We've done two words, and I have not a lot of time. Okay. He's looking for his kid on Mount Zion. Where is Mount Zion? Jerusalem. And where is it in the physical? How many people have been to Jerusalem? Wow, excellent. Um, where in the physical geography of the city is it? Where, can, you, can you picture where Mount Zion is? It's sort of in the center of the city. Where is it relative to the old city? It's adjacent 
to the old city walls, right? The old city walls come around along the Hinnom Valley on that side, and then next to it, there is another hill. That's Mount Zion. On top of Mount Zion, if you're trying to get the picture in your mind, this is the view that you see if you stand in Yamin Moshe near the windmill. That's your view right across the valley. On top of it is the beautiful Church of the Dormition where um, German Protestant uh, church where Mary is said to sleep in eternal rest. On top of that hill is the traditional burial place of King David. On top of that hill is the room that's traditionally associated with the Last Supper. And it stands right outside, right outside the um, old city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city of valleys and hills. So there is the Hinnom Valley that separates what's today the new city from Mount Zion. And then the city slopes down, down, down that hill, and then back up to the next hill. What's going to be the next hill in the chain? Before you get to the Mount of Olives, the next hill in the chain is, it's been in the news a little bit. Moriah is the Temple Mount. The next hill in the chain is Haramoria, is the place of the temple, and then there's another valley, and then you have the Mount of Olives. So let's try to the extent we can to hang on to some of this geography, and we're going to come back to it. He's standing on Mount Zion, adjacent to the old city. Ubahar Mimul, on the opposite hill, Animechapes at Bni Hagatan. On the opposite hill, I, the Jew, am searching for my little boy. The opposite hill here could have two meanings, because we just laid out which are the two hills. One possible hill is the hill of the new city, the place where actually the new construction of Jerusalem began around the time that Amichai moves to Israel. The first neighborhoods of Jerusalem to be built are Nevesha Anan and Yamin Moshe, right opposite Mount Zion. So it could be the Arab is standing in the old city or outside the old city and the Jew is standing in the new city, very much opposites, Mimul. Or it's possible, at least at this point in the poem, and maybe more intriguing, that he could be standing on the other hill, on the other side. He could be standing where? On the Temple Mount. He's not standing on the Temple Mount. But we have to hold on to that possibility that he may be in some ways in two places at once, in the new city and connected somehow to the Temple Mount. Tell me about fathers searching for sons in the Jewish tradition. We talked about shepherds searching for sheep. Tell me about fathers searching for sons. Abraham and Isaac, we just finished reading this series of stories a few weeks ago. Abraham, our patriarch, is promised to be the father of a great nation, except he can't even seem to father one child. He and Sarah try year after year to have a child. When ultimately they can't, Sarah says, go to my handmaiden, go to Hagar. And through her, perhaps your line will be continued. And so Abraham goes to Hagar, and together they have Ishmael. And when Ishmael reaches 13 years of age, 
God takes notice of Sarah, perhaps as God had always intended to, and Sarah becomes pregnant with Isaac. And when Isaac is born, Sarah goes into a fit of jealousy and says, the son of the slave woman will not inherit alongside my son. Put out that son and his mother into the desert. And Abraham complies. Isaac is sent away, a longed-for son, or Ishmael is sent away, a longed-for son offered essentially as sacrifice to the future of his family. But then, the next chapter comes, and God comes to Abraham and says, that longed-for second son, Isaac, you're going to lose him too. He's going to be sacrificed to me on the har on the mountain opposite Mount Zion, on Har Hamoria. Abraham is somebody who searches for children and keeps losing them. Who else searches for children? Jacob searches for children. Jacob has a prodigious brood of children, 12 boys and a girl. But among those 13 children, he has a favorite. That favorite is Joseph. And Joseph winds up carried off to Egyptian slavery, sold by his brothers in the way I always wanted to do with my little brother. <laughs> but Egyptian slave traders never came to my block in Fanwood. But they came, and they took away Joseph. Joseph was the son he craved with the woman he truly loved, Rachel, a son sought after and a son lost. And the whole rest of Genesis is the story of them finding each other again. Who else craves a child and loses the child? Hannah. Hannah, the prototypical mother who wants a child, who goes to Shiloh, who goes to the shrine at Shiloh and says, if you give me a child, I will give him up. If you give me a child, I will give him up. And she has a child in Samuel, and she gives him up. I was just teaching this. I was teaching a Talmud class in L.A. Somebody said, how could it be? You, you pray for a child, you pray for a child, you pray for a child, and then the second you get it, you let him go? Four years old. Four years old, as soon as he's weaned. So Hannah, a mother here, seeking a son, holding on, and losing. We just read it this past week in the Torah. Who seeks a child and loses a child? Well, Sarah, and then this past week was Rebecca and Isaac, right? Rebecca, who has this incredibly challenging pregnancy with two children warring in her womb, and then she has the twins, and she loses both of them again. She loses Isaac, or she loses, sorry, she loses Esau from the trickery. She loses Jacob, who needs to flee his brother. In each generation, our patriarchs and matriarchs long for children, want nothing more than to have children, and then the second they have children, they slip out of their fingers. We are a tradition of parents longing for and losing children. So we have a shepherd searching after a lost kid. We have a father searching after a lost child. And we have looming danger. We have looming danger because anything could happen to either one. 
An Arab shepherd and a Jewish father in one temporary failure. They are on parallel tracks of loss, parallel tracks of searching. A failure, kishlanam hazmani, means temporary, zman means time. It can be a failure in time. These two people separated by a valley, separated on opposite mountains, are caught in the same failure in time that leaves them both with fear and with danger. Our two voices meet above the Sultan's pool in the valley between us. Here we find out which mountain we're standing on. It's poetically interesting to think about a father losing his son on Mount Moriah, as our father Abraham once did. But here we find out that Amichai is picturing himself standing in the new city, standing in the Yerushalayim Habnuyah, the rebuilt Jerusalem, and the Arab shepherd on Mount Zion. And their voices are mingling over the top of the Chinom Valley. You've got pictures that Ari very generously copied in color, taken from two different angles where you can see the Chinom Valley. You can see on the upper one um, a look toward, oh, you can sort of see the wall on the left-hand side that's the lead up to Mount Zion. On the right-hand side is a piece of the new city. Looking from another direction on the bottom, you can see the windmill up in the left-hand corner, the King David Hotel up in the right-hand corner. And in the center, Birkatza Sultan, the Sultan's Pool, a ruin in the center of the Chinom Valley. What do you know about the Chinom Valley? What do you know about? Uh, well, this was the place where children were sacrificed. Thank you. This was the place of child sacrifice in biblical memory. Take a look on page two at the bottom. Text from Chronicles. King Ahaz was 20 years old at the start of his reign and ruled in Jerusalem for 16 years. Ahaz was the one who was married to Jezebel, still an epitome of wickedness. He did not do what was right in the sight of God. He walked in, while he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, he made molten images for the Baalim, for the pagan gods. He burned incense in the valley of Hinnom and burnt his children there in the fire, following the abomination of the Canaanites, who God had cast out. In our early memory, this is where Canaanites came to sacrifice their children. Child sacrifice was a last resort among pagan people when animal sacrifices didn't work, when prayers and incantations didn't work to appease the gods, the most precious thing that could be offered would be the blood of children. And children were sacrificed in our antiquity memory in the Valley of Chinom, and this practice was revived under a king of Israel. Jeremiah the prophet also talks about child sacrifice in the Valley of Chinom. For the people of Judah have done what displeases me, declares God. They have set up their abominations in the house which is called by my name. They have defiled it. They have built shrines of Tophet in the Valley of Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something that I never commanded. 
which never came to my mind. Surely there will come a time when men will no longer speak of Tophet or the Valley of Pinom, but of the Valley of Slaughter. This is the Valley of Slaughter. And they will bury there until there is no room left. And I will silence in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem the sounds of mirth and gladness. Kol chatan kala, the sound of bridegroom and bride. And the land will fall to ruin that this practice of child sacrifice abhorred among the Canaanites is something that Jews are once again engaged with. And what does the prophet Jeremiah say will be the outcome of engaging in child sacrifice? Total destruction. Total destruction. We will lose the land where once there were the sounds of young people in love on the streets of Jerusalem, God will cause that to be silenced in response to the sin of the sacrifice of children. When we say that the Arab shepherd is on Mount Zion and the Jewish father is on the mountain of the new city and in between them is the Valley of Hinnom, standing in between them is the Valley of Lost Children, is the Valley of Sacrificed Children, the place where we came to do what is most abhorrent in God's eyes, and ultimately, what could endanger our hold on the land entirely. The Chinom Valley is held in such horror in the Jewish tradition that its name became associated with the word for hell. Gai is a valley. Gai Hinom. Gai Hinom Gehenom. That's where the name for hell in the Jewish tradition, Gehenom, comes from, from Gai Hinom, the valley of sacrificed children, because what could be more of a vision of hell than a place where parents come and put their children into the fire? So we've just raised the stakes considerably. This isn't just an Arab shepherd looking for a kid. This isn't just a Jewish father looking for his son. These are two archetypes of our tradition. And they are standing with the valley of hell in between them that comes with the sacrifice of children. Neither one of us wants the boy or the goat. Neither one of us wants our kid or our child caught in the mechona machine, nora'ah, terrifying shel chad gad ya, the terrifying chad gad ya machine. Tell me about the terrifying chad gad ya machine. What is chad gad ya? It's from the Haggadah. When do we, when do we sing chad gad ya? At the very end of the Pesach Seder, we sing chad gad ya. It's an Aramaic song, and it's a folk song. Right? It's like the little old lady who swallowed a fly. For those who are less familiar, I'll remind you, it starts with my Abba buying me a, a kid, a little goat, a kid, for two zuzim. Thank you. For two zuzim, and then bad things happen. Because along comes a cat that eats the kid. And then along comes a dog that bites the cat. And then along comes a stick that beats the dog. And then along comes a fire that burns the stick. Along comes some water that puts out the fire. Along comes an ox that slurps up the water. Along comes a shochet, a slaughterer, who kills the ox. Along comes Malach HaMavet, the angel of death, who kills the slaughterer. And finally, who needs to get involved to sort out the mess? 
Kudsha Brichu, that God needs to come in, slaughter the angel of death to set things right. When I was a kid, and we did this at the Seder table with my Bubby and Zadie, we all took different voices. Probably some of you do the same thing. When you, you know, my, the, uh, my father bought me uh, the kit for two Zuzim, and somebody would have to make a goat noise, right? Bleat, bleat. And somebody would make a cat noise, meow, meow, bark, bark. And one of the stick sound was this. And my grandfather, my Zadie, always took the angel of death. And he has this particular angel of death laugh. I have it on tape so that I should be able to show my children and someday, God willing, my grandchildren, my Zadie's angel of death laugh, which I can do no justice to at all. He used to also do it when we'd walk over bridges and tell me it was the sound of the trolls under the bridge. <laughs> we treated it, I mean, it was a lot of fun. It was a, a joyful end to the Seder. Everybody doing voices and singing this melody. Hagadiyah is a messed up song. <laughs> Hagadiyah is awful. It's awful. Because what's the message of Hagadiyah? Death. Death. It's going to get worse. And it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it snowballs and snowballs and snowballs. And what starts as, you know, a cat eating a little kid, which I suppose is sad for the little kid, but this is what cats do, ends up with the slaughterer being taken by the angel of death, ends up with God having to get into the mix, God's self. This is a snowball of catastrophe that we end the Seder with. Why do we do that? That's a bizarre choice, Mr. Mirowitz. Because at the end, God kills the angel of death. Because at the end, God kills the angel of death. What's the significance of that? Because in But God here doesn't just control the angel of death. God, God kills the angel of death. That somehow all of this isn't going to end until God enters in and slaughters the Malachamada. Until God comes in and removes the angel of death until the last enemy to be overcome is death. Yeah, Ed. But it starts off. I mean, it's also... The archetypical road to hell is paved with good intentions because it starts out with a gift. Yeah. It starts out with a kindness of a father to the son. Yeah. And ends up with yeah. Right? One little thing, one little kid, one little kid. How could it all come from one little kid? There's been this weird um, debate point that keeps coming up with politicians being asked, would you kill Hitler? As a baby, are you following this? Like, why this is a question, but it keeps coming up, and like, Jeb Bush said, for sure I'd kill him, and Bernie's being asked about this, and like, so bizarre. We have issues to deal with in our country, and they're dealing with, if I had a time machine, would I kill Hitler and, and Starbucks cups? Like, this is where we've gotten as a culture. Um, the, but it's interesting, the question, of little things that magnify out of control. I remember an article, and then I'll come to you please, ma'am. Um, I remember an article in Time Magazine, in the first uh, Time Magazine of the new millennium, in which it talked about, named the person of the century, and it talked about the trigger of the century. It was the person who shot Archduke Franz Ferdinand. His name was oh. Princip. Princip. 
right? They chose, they chose Einstein. They chose Einstein for the person of the century, but they said the trigger of the century was Princip. If Princip hadn't shot Franz Ferdinand, then one thing wouldn't have led to another, wouldn't have led to another, wouldn't have led to another. World War I, World War I gave birth to World War II, World War II gave birth to the Cold War. The Cold War gave birth to virtually all the geopolitics that we exist today. From one small act comes the whole of the bloody and terrible 20th century. One little act. And might have even, I mean, I don't know that Franz Ferdinand was such a good guy. He might have needed killing. Like, it may not have been the greatest crime ever done. And look what it becomes. Yes, please. It's a reminder, the machine aspect is a reminder that when one set in motion, there's just an endless uh, accumulation of a more powerful and more destructive uh, powers that need tremendous intervention. Yeah. Right, a machine is a terrifying image because a machine has no conscience. A machine just ramps up and once it, once you hit the button, then you go. One, two, three. There's more to it than that because the, the, the killing of the angel of death is, in, is symbolic in Judaism. Death over death is the ultimate. When the Messiah comes, we ultimately obtain death over death. That's the destiny Judaism. And that's what this gets to. It's not a series of increasing catastrophes. The last step of it is the end of catastrophe. Birth pangs of the Messiah? Sure. The lead up to messianic redemption is catastrophe and at the end of it the possibility of ultimate redemption? Maybe. Well, um, yes, there was another hand. Uh, please, Barbara. This is a, a different analogy, and I don't know. It just came to me. It's in our Haggadah, at the end of Haggadah. And the Haggadah is about remembering what happened. And there's a series of events that happens one after another that are horrible events. And God ultimately, they, and ultimately they end up in the land, and God saves them at least to go into the land, um, which for me is an analogy of killing the angel of death. All of the things that stood in their way to get them there um, and they finally get there. And so we're ending the Haggadah, I think, because that's what we're studying throughout the beginning, middle, and end. And in one of the last commandments in Deuteronomy, we are told we are not allowed to hate the Egyptian. Mm -hmm. You left there, they did all of this to you, and you're not permitted to hate them. Perhaps so that we don't continue the cycle. Yes, please. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking at my time and I have five minutes. So we're going to take a look at the end of the poem. One poem, guys. An Arab shepherd searching for his kid like all of the shepherds of the past. A Jewish father searching for his son like all the fathers and mothers of the past. Standing on opposite hills with the valley of sacrificed children with the valley of hell in between them. And with a parallel terror, with a parallel terror that their kid will be caught in a machine outside of their control. 
a machine that while it someday may end with messianic redemption, that someday may end with the death of death, in the meantime, is catastrophic. Is catastrophic. Be'acharkach, and afterwards. I think we can't see those words, acharkach, in this context, without at the end taking this back to the sacrifice of Isaac. Genesis 22 begins, after these things, after these things, Abraham goes to sacrifice his son. We are going to see repeated references to the Akedah happening now, the prototypical moment of the sacrifice of children. We find them amidst the bushes. And uses that word for bush, that's the same word for the bush in which, not the, for the burning bush, that's a sneh. This is a siach, which is the word that's used for the bush in which the ram is trapped in the Akedah story. So here is a child and a kid in that Isaiah image of messianic peace. The lion will lay down with the lamb and a little kid will lead them. Trapped in the bushes, the bushes that represent for us the Akedah, the near sacrifice. And here, their salvation. He's saved. Both are saved. And our voices come back to us. And there's crying and there's laughing inside. In case we haven't gotten the Isaac reference yet, there's crying and there's Isaacing. In case we missed it. Tears and laughter. Tears and laughter, where do tears and laughter get linked in our thought about the land of Israel? They get linked in Psalm 126, in Shir HaMalot, that we sing before Birkat HaMazon, before the grace after meals on Shabbat. When we return, we'll be like dreamers. And our voices will be voices full of laughter. Those who sow in tears will reap in joy. That experience of going back to the land is somehow an experience of both tears and joy. And hasn't that been the experience of our return to our land? It has been an experience of overwhelming joy and of overwhelming loss. It's neither one nor the other. This isn't Mashiach's site. It isn't Messiah time. It's not all joy. And certainly it's not all pain. But it's the commingling and coexisting of the tears of loss wept by mothers, and I don't care of what background, wept by fathers for children lost, and the joy, and the joy of a 2,000-year promise coming true. Searching for a goat or for a child has always been the beginning of a new religion in these mountains. That somehow this search has been the start of some new possibility has been the start of some new way of thinking. I want to end here with on page six, cognizant of time. And there's other sources, particularly on Veterans Day. If you don't know, on page five, the parable of the old man and the young by Wilfred Owen, the great World War I poet. I just have to read this. So Abram rose and claved the wood and went and took the fire with him and a knife. And they sojourned both of them together 
Isaac the firstborn spake and said, My father, behold the preparations, fire and iron, but where the lamb for this burnt offering? Then Abram bound the youth with belts and straps and builded parapets and trenches there and stretched forth the knife to slay his son when lo, an angel called out of heaven saying, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do anything to him. Behold a ram caught in a thicket, that same word, of thorn by its horns, offer the ram of pride instead. But the old man would not so, but slew his son and half the seed of Europe, one by one. Give you chills, Wilfred Owen died in the trenches in World War I. This image of an Abraham who instead of having his knife stopped, keeps going keeps going, and once he goes, like like the machine, he just can't stop, and one by one, sons are sacrificed. One by one, sons are sacrificed, and hasn't it been, hasn't it been that parents still sacrifice their children? Over and over and over again through history, parents still offer up their children to whatever is the Moloch of the day, to whatever is the Baal of the day, that's our vision of hell. And this poem says, if we can find some way to surpass that, if we can find some way in common humanity to stop sacrificing our children, then we have the possibility of bringing redemption. The last text on Jeremiah. We read Jeremiah's screed that said, if you continue to sacrifice your children, I will shut down the voices of mirth and gladness, the voice of bridegroom and bride. Here he says, and I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Israel. I will rebuild them as of old. I will purge them of all the sins that they have committed against me, and I will pardon them of all sin. Thus says God, again there will be heard in this place, which you say is ruined without man or beast, in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, the sound of mirth and gladness, the sound of bridegroom and bride. If we find a way to stop slaughtering our sons and daughters, the possible is there for us. The possible is there for us. Amichai doesn't give us a route politically to get there. He's a poet, not a politician. But he does say to us, we don't dare lose sight of how bad it can get, and we don't dare lose sight of the fact that it is possible still to find redemption. That cynicism is self-fulfilling. And so on Veterans Day, the week after the 20th anniversary of Yitzhak Rabin's murder, mm -hmm. at a time in which, once again, we look at the news coming from a beloved place and there are so many tears, I really do invite us and encourage us to take strength in Amichai's vision, to take strength in the vision of our prophets, to recognize that it does not always have to be this way, that someday, somehow, we still can put down our knives. We still can someday stop slaying our children. Kenya Ritzon. Yeah.